0: I am thrilled and privileged of today's uh, to have today's guest George Will. Uh, George Will is an American icon, a treasure. It, his columns have been appearing for almost half a century. These are great statistics: six thousand columns in all. Four and a half million words. Um, He is a Pulitzer Prize winner. I know, it's a lot of words to come out of one person. Um, His new paperback book is out. Uh, It's one of his great anthologies of his columns, American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent, on sale uh, now. Please go get it. Uh, George, it is a pleasure to have you here. I've been a big fan for years.
1: Well, thank you. This is going to be fun.
0: Yeah. I I mean, first off, this is... uh, obviously a podcast so nobody's looking at it but you've come as you normally have very well well tailored in a suit um and one of the things in my research that i found fascinating is that you only wear one pair of jeans and you've only worn them once you only i i find that in today's american culture amazing
1: well uh, that's since i was 13 when i turned 13 i decided to put away childish things as the scripture says and uh, put away blue jeans and then I, I became struck a few years ago, and I wrote a column that's in the book about denim. It's probably the most talked about column I've written in 20 years. Uh, it's the airport concourse phenomenon. I'd sit there watching people walk down the concourse, and a father would be in his 40s, and his eight-year-old son would be with him, and they're dressed exactly the same way. Right. <laughs> Running shoes, or jeans, collarless shirt, and if, if, if mother's there, she's also wearing denim. And the plague of denim, it, 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 to me, it's, it's indicative of the infantilization of Americans that this Peter Pan principle, I just, I, I won't grow up. I'm tired of that.
0: Is there a flip side to that, that maybe uh, this kind of blending of the generations is not a horrible thing? It's, it, it, we, it brings us closer together, just throwing that out there?
1: Uh, uh, and, and I'll throw it out. <laughs> no, uh, i don't I don't th- I don't think it's a good thing. It seems to me that uh, th- the generation shouldn't blend. One generation is supposed to raise the other, to form and inform the other. Uh, and you uh, in, in a way, we're doing that. one of the things in my book that I write about is is all that is implied in the fact that in fairly recent years, uh, the noun parent has become a verb. We now parent our children uh, as though it's a kind of science. It's not science, it's uh, complicated, and it's probably the most, well, it is the most important thing a society does is raise children. But w- what we've developed is, is a kind of the hovering helicopter parent, the belief that a child should uh, leave home Uh, assure that the world is their oyster. Uh, So what they do is they arrive on campuses and immediately demand safe spaces and trigger warnings and speech codes and bias response teams to fan out over the campus and all that stuff. All goes back, it seems to me, to the way we now parent, to use the awful verb, uh, that uh, we, we don't just open the back door and say go out and play and come back for lunch if you're hungry otherwise dinner's at 6 that's what, what it was like when i was growing up now if you do that you have to get arrested for practicing free range parenting
0: yeah um, i love that i love that set of words that you use free range parenting it's fantastic yeah
1: well it's just it's uh, it's one of my many grievances it's not at the top but the list is long you talk, uh, going back to growing up, uh, you grew up uh, in what seems like a very idyllic, uh,
0: marvelous Norman Rockwell painting uh, as a paperboy. Um, your dad was a philosophy professor. Uh, you just seem to have this blessed, perfect Americana childhood. And, and take me back to you, George Willows, 13-year-old paperboy.
1: Yeah, the champagne a Courier, like, like so many small newspapers, it's now extinct. But uh, it, uh, I'd come back from school. It was an evening paper, and uh, there'd be 50 copies of the courier there, and I'd fold them into little squares, put them in a canvas bag, put the canvas bag on the uh, handlebars of my balloon tire maroon and cream Schwinn bike, Love and roll up and down the streets throwing the papers on the porches. Uh, it was uh, it was an early in training in uh Responsibility. Some something had to be done on a particular at a particular time of day. It's good for you. So let let's. I want to
0: fast forward to exactly where we are today. And I I read a great in one of somebody one of your interview in a column that you were being interviewed. There was a comment section, and somebody wrote at the end the Republican Party George Will has been replaced by my pillow guy. I thought as as a kind of a. <laughs> uh, I, I thought I thought that would I thought. That, that just caught caught my attention I'd love your your thoughts on that
1: <laughs> kind of sums it up doesn't it it does I left the Republican Party on the morning of June 3rd 2016 that was the morning after Paul Ryan my friend who I very much admire cheerful happy substantive. Uh, Endorsed Trump, and I said, if these people really think someone as as intelligent and public spirited as Paul Ryan thinks he can really work with this guy, um, then I, I I don't have a pew in that church.
0: How did we? If you took all of your wisdom and all of your four four and a half million words and your six thousand columns, if how did we get here today that Donald Trump could not only have been president but could have served as president? And still 40% of this country hold thumbs up and go, yeah, I like what that guy stands for. How, from where you were as that paper boy and this country of greatness, and greatness ahead of us, how did we get here?
1: It's a good question. I mean, the situation's even more dire than you suggest. I Democracy mean, on
0: the precipice of, of, of falling apart. I mean, it is as dire as it can be.
1: 74 million Americans watched him govern for four years and said, We want four more years of this. And that was 11 million more people than had voted for him in 2016. The question is, how did anger get loose like this? How did people get so angry and why? It has something to do with the pace of change, the pell mell. Uncertainty of of a world turned upside down constantly by uh, globalization and all the rest. I happen to think globalization is probably just about the best thing that's ever happened to the human race. If you look at the billions lifted up from subsistence poverty—that's about a dollar ninety a day living on that—globalization has been wonderful, but it has its casualties. The question is why did casualties translate into class hatreds, which is what happened? And the answer is I don't know. But there is something about uh, American life today particularly, not just American life, but especially American life, where people feel condescended to. uh, And they feel that a constant prickly disrespect directed their way. If you say to a young person nowadays, or to actually to people of all ages, "I think you're wrong," what they hear is, "I think you're stupid." We just haven't—we've lost the knack of vigorous argument because everything comes now encased in resentments and senses of victimhood. Uh, Mr. Trump, uh, to the extent that he's a conservative, has pioneered crybaby conservatism. He's made conservatives have now plunged, jumped with both feet into the victim game. And they're victims of Hollywood, of academic elites, of the media, etc., And all those, I mean, they have legitimate grievances against all of them, but it's this sense of I'm imperiled and I'm victimized and I've, I don't really have agency anymore that I think makes for a particularly curdled kind of politics. I always like to talk
0: to people, and you're a couple years older than me there. It's very hard for me to say that anymore as, as, as I age along. And I always like to talk to people who have a little bit more wisdom than me because of the year, not only for most people have that, but because of the years they've led. I am so worried about where we are. You know, you write a lot about the Holocaust uh, and lessons from there. And one of the lessons is, is that how quickly a norm can, norms can change. And how very quickly, how in Nazi Germany, how it it went from, you know, literally weeks after Hitler was elected to Jews being beaten up in the streets. And I'm so worried that our norms are so close to changing that we are, I'm not saying the United States is going to enter a period and we're going to replay the Holocaust, but that really really scary things can happen if all of a sudden democracy goes away and there is a we're we're on the precipice of that tell me if i should be more worried or less worried than i'm talking about
1: i'd be less worried in the sense that i don't i don't think this this country was not made by fragile people and it is not fragile uh our institutions are remarkably resilient now the norms that sustain them uh have as you say been systematically undermined not just by mr trump Uh, The election denying is extremely destructive, but I would remind you that on January 6th, the resonant date, January 6th, 2004, 31 Democratic members of the House of Representatives voted to not certify the electoral votes. They passed a non-binding resolution, not certify the electoral votes of George Bush for Ohio. This would have made John Kerry president. So this business of taking our political squabbles into Congress, into the electoral vote count itself, uh, this was uh, 16 years before 2020. So we, we've been uh, on a downward spiral for a while. I don't know if that's encouraging or not, because the, uh, Will's axiom about modern life is there's no such thing as rock bottom. Uh, But our institutions themselves, it seems to me, are are not about to buckle.
0: They're not about to buckle, but the polling of Americans' uh, disdain for just about every institution, the Supreme Court, Congress— Uh, everything just continues to go south. So I believe we are a strong people and I believe we will continue to flourish in our own ways. But the belief in institutions has never been lower. And once the belief in the institution starts to crumble, does that put the institutions in play? Uh, I mean, we've had a a president who is, whether it's uh, the FBI, whether it's the CIA, things that we believe protect us, and uh, they're in play.
1: They are, and, and it especially threatens the courts. As Alexander Hamilton said of the judiciary and and the Federalist Papers, the judiciary, he said, is the least dangerous branch because it has neither the power of the person nor the power of the sword. That is, it has only the power to persuade and to get compliance because of its prestige. Well, the Supreme Court has been living off the prestige of Brown v. Board of Education since 1954. And there's two things to note about that. It's been living off the prestige of taking an opinion that overturned a precedent, Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal and all that. So the Supreme Court got prestige, A, by overturning one of its own precedents, and B, by going against public opinion. Um, I don't just mean Southern opinion. Brown v. Board of Education was Brown v. the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Yeah. There was was no national consensus for, no national ardor for, no national support for school desegregation. Uh, So, uh, the Supreme Court is a perfect example of why why institutions, particularly those without the power of the sword or the power of the purse, need the norms of society to buttress them, as they buttress the norms of society. And uh, once you Once you decide that the courts are just many legislatures, uh, then you then you've lost the rule of law.
0: There is an interesting uh, poll I read from Axios that one in three Americans today would. And this includes Republicans and Democrats. It was it was fairly split, would rather have a. Co- competent unelected leader than an incompetent elected leader. And one in three Americans also believe that a president should be able to replace judges if they're going against popular opinion. So there is this, there is this tremendous appetite for at least a third of this country for an iron fisted ruler that works against the
1: norms that we've been built on. I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, with regard to uh, making courts and judges subject to a more plebiscitory democracy. Running as an independent candidate, third-party candidate in 1912, former President Teddy Roosevelt proposed exactly that, having votes on Supreme Court opinions uh, to vote them up or vote them down. Uh, So we've had strains of, recurring strains of radicalism in our politics. Uh, the, this feels different today because uh, it's so widespread and accompanied by such violent rhetoric. Uh, part of the blame here uh, has to go to technology, uh, social media, and particularly Twitter, but all social media, the instantaneous and anonymous dissemination of of. Speech and rhetoric that you would not utter in your living room, but you're perfectly happy to send off into the ether forevermore. Uh, this is a human temptation that we've never had on this scale before now it's important to understand that eighty percent of Americans never tweet, and of the twenty percent who do eighty percent of the people do eighty percent of the uh, or twenty percent of the people do eighty percent of the tweeting. Still, it's a tone-setting technology, and the tone is not good.
0: You mentioned social media. I get asked this all the time, and it's kind of a question that I don't have an answer to. If I made you czar of social media, and the big question today is Facebook, if, if I want to put something up on Facebook, I don't have to go through any of the stringent requirements that if I want to put something up on an ABC morning news show, I, I have to go through more uh, regulatory hoops if I want to sell laundry detergent, On broadcast TV than I have to do if I put anything up on social media. So how do we, how do we, we obviously the free speech is, is, is the big elephant in the room and the wonderful elephant in the room. How do we protect free speech, but at the same time, regulate this beast where 50% of people get their news from?
1: Uh, I don't think you do regulate it. Uh, Once you put this in political play, as it were, uh, once you say that these private platforms are really public carriers common carriers and should be regulated, Uh, you have put speech on a slippery slope that is uh, not going to end well. Facebook is not forever. The Roman Empire is gone, the Carolingian Empire is gone, the Ottoman Empire is gone, the British, Soviet, French, Spanish empires are all gone, but Facebook is forever? I don't think so. Nothing lasts
0: well, Facebook is not forever. I could I could argue that social media platforms they'll take on different forms, but basically, um, mass communication vehicles that become news, yes, will continue. And so, what, how do we get our arms around that?
1: I, I'm not sure whose arms do we want around that, because if if the government's arms are around it. It's going to be political. Right. Government is politics straight through. And uh, we, whatever's wrong with the current system, you can make it worse. And that, w- that would do it, I think.
0: You were one of the pioneers of on morning television. You, Sam Donaldson, David Brinkley uh, on, Sa- on Sunday mornings on ABC. And there was always robust but friendly discussions. Um, I, it was a great Sam Donaldson quote about being on TV with you is that, he said that you were the smartest person he ever met and somebody pointed out to him, but you always disagree with him. So what does that say about you? (laughs) And that was kind of the, the, but that kind of, we're on opposite ends of, of the spectrum, but yet we can kind of not negate each other. It doesn't have to be hateful yet. We see on television today, what works, what sells, what's rates is vitriol. And is this a landscape that we are going to be stuck with? And I just—you—you've come from the other end of the spectrum. I love your thoughts on that.
1: Unquestionably, anger sells. Unquestionably, there's a certain tone-setting minority of Americans who don't feel quite alive unless they're furious. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's the only—it's the only emotion that that is strong enough to break through their neural system somehow. Is it going to last forever? I don't think so. I think that the political market is not responding to a demand that's out there. It's not supplying the demand. And the demand is for what I would call a deep breath candidate. A candidate who turns to the country and says, all right, everybody, deep breath. Calm down. Was that what Biden
0: was supposed to be? Biden, Biden was supposed yes, to be
1: that. Yes. And it is one of the great unforced errors in the history of American politics that he turned right around and embraced the progressives who never embraced him. He ran against them in the primaries. The Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders faction of the party got one-third of the votes. He got two-thirds, basically. And he turns around and embraces them, Not not because he's a progressive. He's not. He's a Democrat. He goes where the Democratic Party goes. And the energy in the Democratic Party is on the left, just as the energy in the Republican Party is on the right. But I think a, a, a presidential candidate, the good news about Trump is this. Uh, he showed the power of a president to change the tone of the country.
0: Why is that good
1: mm-hmm. news? Because a different kind of president could have a, 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 an opposite effect. So what we need is, is a candidate who talks to the American people the way Lincoln did in his first inaugural. He's speaking at a time when seven states had already seceded. Uh, he said, "We are not enemies. We must not be enemies. Uh, someone needs to say that to people. Just calm down. What are you so excited about? Uh, and what you what, what I think people would find out if they paused long enough to think is they're excited about being excited. Uh, they're excited about uh, uh, perceived slights and resentments." Uh, and and they might say you know we're we this is somehow the whole American scene today is wildly disproportionate. We are a free prosperous country when almost everyone's getting along well. Uh, race relations have never been better except on places like college campuses where they think of nothing but race. There of course it's mm-hmm. terrible. But uh, if you walk around looking at Americans interact in their daily lives. Uh, things are pretty good in America.
0: It's interesting. You probably couldn't be more opposite in so many ways than Bill Maher. And Bill Maher said a similar thing in that telling the progressives to stop whining that and they could take a victory lap once in a while that, you know, you could talk about the race problems, but but you look at how far we've come and I could give examples of that in any area. And I, I where is the candidate? Do you see anybody in the on the benches anywhere on either side that you think has the ability to do that?
1: Well, uh, my my the filter I put up for presidential candidates is this. I recently wrote a column, forty nine percent serious, saying we should amend the Constitution to say the following: No one shall be eligible to be president if they are or ever have been a senator. <laughs> uh, the Senate, the Senate has become a purely performative, tweeting gesture, pose, striking place. Uh, terrible uh, as an incubator of executive talent and leadership. So let's go out and find some governors. Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee. You've never heard of him because he's not shouting. He's not rolling around in the in the mud with everybody. Uh, Chris Coons of New Hampshire. Ducey of Arizona. Three Republicans who may just centrist, commonsensical, successful. Lord knows they get reelected. Uh, they're out there, but they're just not coming to anyone's attention, partly because they're not uh, in the Senate, which is uh, about a four-minute walk from various green rooms, NBCs and Foxes and all the rest at 400 North Capitol. Uh, but th- there are people out there, if we could just get the the media interested in people who are not uh, on Capitol Hill. You... You're
0: a student of human behavior, and I always wonder, and we talked about this earlier towards the beginning, of the. and you said you quit the Republican Party when when your friend Paul Ryan became uh, an endorser of Trump. The toadyism today of, I always wonder how some of these senators who spinelessly follow Donald Trump go home and face their loved ones. Don't they have children? Don't they have wives? Don't they have partners? Don't they have husbands that say... How, how, how do you do now? Obviously they do it to, to protect their jobs, but I never understood as somebody myself who likes to feel as a strong, independent human being, how they face their loved ones with the, with the acquiescence to something that is, is, is so perilous to us.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the cures for this would be a measure that I've been for for a long time. And the Supreme court has put out of reach. That is term limits. Uh, Term limits change the motives for going into politics and for behaving in politics. If you cannot have a long political career, you will think of the next generation more than the next election. And uh, that would be a good good Madisonian reform, Madisonian in the sense that Madison understood life is all about incentives. If you want to change the world, change incentives. so that there are measures that we could take. The Supreme Court <clears throat> ruled, I'm afraid, correctly, that uh, you can't do this by statute. Therefore, you have to do a constitutional amendment. And the likelihood is approximately zero that Congress is going to send to the states for ratification an amendment limiting the members of Congress's ability to have long careers.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, think that's just, I think we can bet on that one. Um, one of your favorite columns you've talked about is about your son uh, who has down syndromes, who I believe it was when he turned 40. Uh, and obviously Roe v. Wade uh, has hit you uh, personally, as far as, it, it, for those reasons, talk to me about first of all, how is your son now? I think he's 48 or 49 he's, and he's 50. Uh, 50. Wow. That makes you, that make, that makes you not so young anymore. And
1: 81. Right? <laughs> That's state secret. Uh John is terrific. He, he, gets, he works sort of, I mean, it's not demanding work, but he works in the Washington Nationals Clubhouse, which means he gets up in the morning and goes to a major league ballpark, which means he has a better job than his father has. That's uh, for sure. And uh, he navigates the Washington subway system much better than I can. Uh, he's, he's doing well, thank you.
0: And what was your reaction as we as we saw our history being made with the overturning of Roe v. Wade? I'm just Roe v. Wade, I, I know you're you're uh, you have very passionate thoughts about that.
1: Well, I am pro-life. I think uh, it is a people say, "Well, abortions not an issue on which you can split the differences." Sure, it is. Uh, intelligent, thoughtful men and women of goodwill can say a. Life begins at conception. That's not medieval theology. That's high school biology. Something unique with its own unique DNA begins at conception. When does, where intelligent people can argue and and come to a compromise is when should we say a person exists? Yes. Europe, Europe has basically come out where Mississippi was in the Dobbs case, about 15 weeks. 20 weeks, if you remember, 15, 15. And by the way, 93% of all abortions occur within the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, right. This, this, the, there's no reason why that can't settle the issue. And, and we'll have most Americans living under a regime that is permissive but not disrespectful of life the way that late-term abortion is disrespectful of clearly human life. Uh, so, the. the I We talked a moment ago about how many things have changed and for the better in the United States. When John was born on my birthday in uh, 1972, he was born in Georgetown Hospital, and the hospital geneticist, who was a Jesuit priest, came around and said uh, to John's parents, well, the first thing you have to decide is, are you going to take John home? And rather nonplussed, I said, I thought that's what parents did with their children. But in 1972, it still was uh, more or less acceptable to institutionalize Down syndrome children, which is why, by the way, the life expectancy of John as a Down syndrome child at, in 1972 was 20 years. It's 20 now years. He's yeah. 50, yeah. because, well, they weren't stimulated, they were warehoused, they were not. Uh, mainstreamed in schools, all kinds of improvements have been made, uh, of which John is really the first generation of beneficiaries.
0: Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, baseball. You write so much about baseball. You were a a long-suffering, up until a few years ago, Washington Nationals fan. How do you feel with Juan Soto now wearing a Padres uniform?
1: I think it's great because – we got six players from San Diego, and there uh, some of them are going to be uh, standouts. You know, and, and baseball is funny that way. They talk about Soto. Every time the uh, one in three times that the Golden State Warriors bring the ball up court, Steph Curry touches the ball. Uh, right. uh, an NFL quarterback handles the ball on every play. One Soto comes to bat four times That's a game. game. Uh, baseball is just built differently. Uh, so I don't believe in investing over much in any one player. Uh, you got to get 27 outs. you got to avoid making 27 outs.
0: You have spoken out against football in that it brings up two of the worst parts of American society, violence and group, group meetings, in effect, huddles. Yes. Um, you fly in the face of where America, America is more passionate about football now than ever. Uh, talk to me about your aversion to football.
1: Well, first of all, the human body is not built for it. The kinetic energy in football now, the, when the guys who are six six and weigh three hundred and ten pounds are over twenty yards, and basically most of what happens in football takes place within twenty yards of the line of scrimmage, they, they're as fast as the running backs. The kinetic energy is just too much, and now we know—we're not guessing anymore. We know what cumulative small concussions, too small to be detected by the normal concussion protocols. Cumulative small depressions, uh, concussions, make people uh, early in life to, uh, susceptible to the onset of senescence of various sorts, uh, depression, suicides, all kinds of things. Football is uh, someday, I hope, we are going to think of football the way today we think of boxing as a really uh, guilty pleasure for those who still take pleasure in it.
0: Yeah. Where do you, where do you get your news from every day?
1: Uh, I start reading, actually, the hard copies of the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I read the Financial Times on, um, online. Then I do the aggregators: Real Clear Politics, Real Clear Policy, Real Clear Defense, Real Clear World, Real Clear Books, Real Clear Policy, etc. On my phone, uh, there's an enormous amount of really good writing going on these days, and the uh, the iPhone, bless its heart, the smartphone. Um, Puts it all at our fingertips. That's what I read. I, I
0: you, When you mentioned hard copy, it struck me a couple of weeks ago. I was bringing my daughter up to George Washington University. We were on the uh, Metroliner, on the Acela. Uh, and there was not one hard copy newspaper. You know, you the image of going yeah. back to the railroad, people holding Not one. Not a one yeah. in an entire car. It's amazing, isn't it? It, it,
1: it truly is. And it, uh, uh, I don't know how long they can still hire uh, – an immigrant to come by my house at four 30 in the morning and throw a paper made from felled trees, turned into paper and covered with ink on my front porch. I don't know how long that can go on, Damn. but I'm enjoying it while it lasts.
0: You and me both, my brother, any predictions for the next five years and in any essence of our society you'd like to put out there just as a uh, prognosticator of all, all things.
1: Well, to start with the most important thing, baseball is going to get better. Because baseball is uh, changing the rules not to, change, yes. not to change baseball, but to restore it to something like the game we grew up with, where the ball was put in play, the action was crisp, the games were slower or were, were, uh, were, uh, took less time faster. Uh, so baseball is going to get better. Uh, our politics is going to get better because I believe in markets, and I believe the political market sooner or later is going to supply what I think a majority demands, which is, as I said a moment ago, the deep breath candidate.
0: Love it. George. Will. what a pleasure talking to you The paperback. That's just out American happiness and discontents, the untrue, the unruly torrent, uh, w- several of his six and a half million words that he's written. <laughs> George, <laughs> thank you so much. So much. Thank you so much for taking time to add how busy you are.
1: I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Hope you
0: enjoy my interview with George. Will. uh, what a bright guy. He's seen it before, man. And uh, listen to a lot of things he's got to say. those That's our interview for today. We'll see you on Tuesday for On Brand with uh, our new brands of the week that drop every Tuesday. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple, uh, anyplace else. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on On Brand.